For mom and pop shops in New York City, high rents and competition from chain stores and online retailers can be insurmountable barriers. The city has seen many small businesses shutter their doors over the years as a result of these challenges. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Over the past several years, husband and wife photography team James and Carla Murray have been photographing the distinctive facades of mom and pop shops throughout the five boroughs. Their first book of images, called Storefront, The Disappearing Face of New York, came out in 2008. Carla and James are now out with a follow-up book called Storefront 2, A History Preserved, The Disappearing Face of New York. Carla is with me now in the studio. Carla, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having us. Well, in in this case, just me today. (laughs) Yes, well, thank you for being here. So when did you and James start this project? Well, our first book, Storefront, we began photographing the small disappearing mom-and-pop shops in the late 1990s, well, really like mid-1990s. What happened is we started noticing that they were disappearing, and in the fact that they were disappearing, somehow the neighborhoods looked different. Like they no longer felt the same, they didn't have the same vibe, and it felt like, you know, a big part of the neighborhood, which gave it its character and its uniqueness, was being lost. So we started documenting these wonderful stores, and not only did we take the photograph, but we also interviewed the owner. Speaking of disappearing, you are wearing a CBGB t-shirt. Now that venue has disappeared in that's, New York City. That's right. And we kind of, it's a thing that James and I do. We collect a lot of uh, different t-shirts from the different mom and pop stores that we go to. So it, anytime we have an event or do something, we're always wearing one of our collections. So yeah, because it was, this is a radio station, I said, oh, this is this would be the perfect t-shirt for today. Yeah, of course, CBGB is really an amazing place for music of the past. Of course, of course. You know, the television, Blondie, so many people got their start there. And sadly, it's a John Vervardo's store now. So it's like the whole area that the Bowery, I mean, we, we live in the East Village. But to be honest, I mean, what prompted us to even take a photo of CBGB, we didn't think it would ever disappear. We, we really started taking the photos in the outer boroughs because that's where it really hit us that they were you know, closing and somehow the neighborhood felt different. Even though we live in the East Village and we lived like in the same apartment for over 20 years now, somehow like when you see things every day and even if things close and, you know, the city is always changing, like we're not going to deny that, but it doesn't register. I mean, it does, but you don't, you don't think about it. So it was really us going into the outer boroughs, which prompted us to start taking the photos. What was the first photo you took? Do you remember? I had to think on that. What I... What I believe it was, was actually it was probably either in the Bronx or it was in like a a far out, well, probably not even that far out. I mean, in part of Bushwick, Brooklyn, Um, either one. And I can I can tell you why it was either that I can't I can't place exactly what it would what it would be. But I think in the Bronx, it was probably along St. Anne's Place in the South Bronx. We were documenting graffiti art in the 1990s, and we were going into the outer boroughs because a lot of the large walls, and when I say graffiti, people automatically think of like a tag, you know, like an ugly scrawl on a building, but that's not what we were photographing. We were photographing like the artistic side of the art form, the big murals, and they were done on, you know, very large scale, like hundreds of feet long. So most of the buildings where these artists were painting 
were in the outer boroughs where they had access to these large buildings that were either abandoned or um, nobody was, you know, really bothering them to paint on the outside. So that's how we happened to go into South Bronx documenting this. And then we saw all these great little old stores um, on St. Anne's. And every single one of them, I, I know that the, the photo that's in the first storefront book, every single one of them is, is gone now. Hmm. Do you see yourselves as activists, people who are on a mission to help preserve by putting these places on display in these books, by taking these photographs? Well, to us, I mean, it's more of an artistic intervention, I guess you could say. I mean, our whole purpose of taking the storefront photos and the interviews was really, it was a very personal project. I mean, we didn't ever think to make a book. We were just taking them because we love the the stores. We love the signage. I mean, coming from documenting graffiti art, which is a letter-based art form, we were always looking at letters because that's what we were interested in. So we were interested in fonts and typography. So when we started noticing these stores that they were disappearing, it was really because of their signage. Like we liked their hand-painted signs or their glorious neon signs. That's what attracted to us um, at first. It was very visually based, but then, of course, we started interviewing the owners and found out so much fascinating history from them that it kept the project going. But, I mean, to us, it wasn't really about being an activist and making a stance. It was just a feeling that we had, like, that we wanted to just document something that we felt was disappearing and wasn't, was overlooked. Like, people don't even think about the places that they go into or they might not appreciate the beauty of the exterior of the store like they'll go in there and they'll you know buy something but they won't think about oh wow look at that beautiful porcelain tile that makes up the outside or this gorgeous hand-painted sign calls all those kind of things it's like a lost art just similar to graffiti i mean we saw the very graffiti was is constantly being painted over and it's being erased by the city so we saw a big parallel between the two so in answer to your question i mean it really wasn't a political cause that we were taking it was more just to document these things because we felt they were so important to preserve all of these store owners of course have personal stories of how they came into business and how they managed to stay around but is there a common theme that you've come across in talking with these store owners definitely definitely i mean from the interviews, and this is from like the horse's mouth, as I like to say, the, the store owners themselves, they told us that the biggest concern that they had was that when they did not own the building, they were worried about the increasing rents. You know, a lot of it had to do with um, gentrification of the neighborhoods, and the price of real estate would go up, and that in turn would cause that their landlord would increase their rent to sometimes, I mean, astronomical you know, differences, not just like a couple of hundred dollars or even a thousand dollar increase. And I'm, I mean, tripling, quadrupling 15 times. I mean, levels to that, these small mom and pop places, they can't absorb that kind of rent increase. So they told us that they were very concerned about that. And that was what we found was pretty much the death knell for many of the businesses, like two thirds of the first storefront book, which was published in 2008, Two-thirds of the 325 stores that are in there are are already gone. Wow. And this book, Storefront 2, which is just out, like, you know, a matter of weeks, it's already 20%. So it's a huge, huge number. It has become like a race against time to document these and capture them all. What would you say have been the biggest losses, even places that you like to frequent that are now gone? 
I mean, it definitely hit us hard, just like the shirt that I'm wearing when CBGB's closed, because to be honest, we didn't think it was ever going to go anywhere. I mean, we're like, you know, kind of took it for granted. And to us, I had a lot of history um, being made there. And kind of that was like a hangout for James and I in, in the 80s. So that that hit us hard. But as far as like a store itself, just a recent one, which we lost in 2014, which is in the book, is uh, Dira Birdie's Pastisseria, because that's in our own neighborhood of the East Village. And oddly enough, it wasn't the case of a rent increase where, where that um, closed. They actually owned the entire building that they were located in. But it was a combination of a lot of factors of, like, the poor economy and people not, like, buying the Italian baked goods as much anymore and the the age of some of the older family members that were in it, they had a decline in health. So it was a lot of decisions that went into it. But again, we never thought that one was closed because in our minds, they owned the building and we knew that. We were, you know, we had interviewed the family members. We They knew us because we were fre- frequent patrons of the store. So it was surprising when it, when it closed, for sure. Still open is the cigar shop that is on the cover of this latest book, Storefront to Village Cigars. Exactly. Uh, We just, I mean, it's always a hard decision, like, what to put on the cover of the book because it kind of becomes, like, the spokes, like, well, this person's spoke store for for the entire Uh project. But there was a lot of reasons why we chose that. And first of all, it has a really interesting history in that the whole reason that that storefront is like the shape that it is, which is an odd, unusual shape. It's kind of like a triangular shape, Mm -hmm. is that it was created when the city like made the IRT subway line and they cut up a lot of the people's property and they created these odd shaped lots. And it has a funny history because it it was there in 1922. That's when it was um, built. But before then, the lot and of the adjacent lot next to it was owned by this guy, um, the Hess estate, like a Mr. Hess. It was his family's building. They had like a five-story building. And what happened is the city came by one day and said, we're going to build the subway. Um, we're taking your building. And then that's what they would do because it was eminent domain. And when it was a public works project, they could say, you know, we, we need your building because we need to knock it down. We have to build all this. And he was really upset that he had to give up his building. And the funny story is, is that he left a, he wouldn't give up a 500-square-inch piece of property that is actually located in front of the Village Cigars. And he put a mosaic in the street that says, property of the Hess estate, never been dedicated for public purposes. And he marked that he never sold that little 500-square-inch piece of property hmm. to the city. He kept it. They wanted to use it for their sidewalk that they were creating. But he said, nope, you took my building, but you're not having this little tiny piece of property. And he kept it. And then when... The lot was um, being built, you know, Village Cigars. He actually sold it to for $1,000 to the owners of Village Cigars. Huh. So, And it has iconic signage, the Village Cigars. Yeah. Like, it's just a, an iconic kind of New York place that you would go in and you'd get some cigarettes and the n- newspaper in the morning. And, you know, it just screamed New York to us. And we kept also, if you see throughout the book... The subway color, like that Pantone kind of greenish blue, throughout the book, it's our cover color, mm-hmm. and it demarcates the different section headings. And for that reason, being that the subway is right there in the picture, we we chose it as well. So there was a kind of couple of 
reasons. And has Village Cigars remained in the same hands for a long time now? I mean, there's been a couple of different owners. It's not it's not the same people, but I mean, nothing. The exterior pretty much looks the same. So that's the nice thing about it. In 1922, that's a long time. What would you say are among the most unique shops still operating in New York City today? I would say that the specialty shops, um, especially a lot of the food shops that sell a particular kind of item and like only that particular item, which, you know, you don't think that could survive. I mean, what comes to mind from this book is a place called Mansouris Pastries, and it's in um, Midwood, Brooklyn. When we saw the place, we were just blown away by the signage because it said Mansoura's Oriental Pastry. And we're like, oh, well, what is that? The, do they sell moon cakes? Like, mm-hmm. you know, something that we would get in Chinatown? And we immediately thought that. And when we went in, we spoke with the second generation owner, Josiane Mansoura. And, you know, we looked around, and we immediately saw that it wasn't Oriental Pastries at all, like we had mistakenly thought. So we asked her, well, like, what's What's the deal with the name? And she explained the history of the store, and it was so fascinating. What happened was the Mansoura family actually had a confectionery shop in Aleppo, Syria, dating back to like 1780. So the store, even though it, I believe if I'm correct, it's in 1961 that it um, began in Brooklyn. But what happened was her father-in-law, who you know emigrated to the United States, they had moved from Aleppo, Syria to Cairo, Egypt, and they had provided um, pastries for King Farouk. Like, it was a big, very famous store. Because of political instability and war, he ended up moving to the United States. And what happened was, is he translated the French word for Middle East, which is Moyen Orient, to describe the type of pastries that he was selling in his store, Oriental pastries, meaning pastries from the Middle East. But just like we thought... A lot of people make the mistake of thinking the word oriental means like Chinese or, or something mm-hmm. like that, referring not to the Middle East at all, but more to the um, to the Near East or the Far East. And actually what they sell there is their specialty is a pistachio baklava. That is what they are known for. And they're the only pastry place in the entire New York that specializes in that type of pastry. So we thought that was so fascinating that a store could survive dating back from 1780 here in Brooklyn selling this very specialized type of pastry. And the key to their business being still, you know, vibrant as it is today is the neighborhood has been gentrified also, Midwood, Brooklyn, and a lot of their customers that knew of that type of pastry perhaps moved away, but they're able to ship. She told us that the like the pistachio baklava, for instance, is has a lot of honey, and honey acts as a natural preservative, so there's no dairy in the pastry at all, so they can ship it because it's, you know, a natural preservative. So we thought, you know, that kind of history and that kind of you know, specialty item, just it was so fascinating to us that that could still exist. And sadly enough, if you go there today, they've changed the signage now. More modern? Yes, they've changed it to a more modern and they've gotten rid of the word oriental. And uh, we know the reason why when we interviewed her, just like we had making that mistake, she told us they had so many problems that in the yellow pages that they listed them under the heading of oriental mm-hmm. and that people... They had to call up the Yellow Pages and explain to them, oh, no, we're not that kind of Oriental that you're thinking of. You know, we're not selling Chinese food here. You have to relist us. We're not, 
we're not that kind of place. So I guess many people had made the mistake that perhaps they finally said, okay, we're just going to call ourselves Mansoura Pastries, and that's what they do today. Now, while they made some changes, some of the store owners that you've encountered are adamant about not changing anything, right? (laughs) That's right. In fact, it's funny because I can think of a place right here in the Bronx that specifically went out of their way to explain that the only reason they're just surviving today instead of Liebman's uh, delicatessen is that their place is like a time capsule. And they said if they hadn't served like their basically their Jewish, you know, um, comfort food, their uh, delicatessen food, just the same way that they did, you know, back in the day that they would have closed a long time ago. And it was a funny story because when we spoke with the manager, he said that the reason that they are in a time capsule is that the original owner had a like a just a a guy that was working there at the time and when the the new owners took ownership, and then when I say new, they've been around for a, for a while. I, th- I I can't remember the exact date, but it's probably like been twenty years or something like that, or maybe more. Maybe it's in the nineteen eighties. Uh, I I can't recall the exact date that they took ownership. But what they did is they had this guy who was like basically um, had started out as a dishwasher. His name was Marcelo. They had all the old timers teach him how to make all the recipes that they serve there, and. He said the good thing about Marcelo, who is the, like the head chef there today, is that he has no creativity, that he just learned everything by rote. And then if you ask him to make something off the menu, he, he doesn't know how to do it. <laughs> you know, that, that would be dumbfounding to him. He only makes what he was shown how to make, and it's just done by rote, and that has kept the place afloat because he said if they hired a new chef that said just came out of culinary school, that he said, oh, they'd probably ruin the place in a week because they'd have all these great new ideas of, okay, you can do this better, and this would be more efficient, and you know you can cut costs by doing this, and it would ruin the place. He said Marcelo is perfect. It's comforting to know that there is a shop in New York City still making old-fashioned egg creams. And I'm talking about Ray's Candy Store on 7th Street in Manhattan. Yeah, Ray's Candy Store, uh, it's a really interesting history. And Ray Alvarez, who owns a store, and he's been there since 1974. And it's kind of like an ad hoc community center in that he really cares about a lot of the people that live in the neighborhood He's been open 24 hours a day since 1974, and he's one of the very few places, really, especially in that neighborhood, that was open 24 hours a day because people that aren't familiar with the East Village back in the 70s and back in the 80s when James and I moved to the neighborhood, it was um, a rougher neighborhood. You know, now there's a lot of restaurants in the area that, you know, selling entrees for $42, but that wasn't the case back then. There was a lot of... um, it was Tent City um, happening in Tompkins Square Park across the street. And Ray told us, he's like, you know, I've been here throughout the neighborhood supporting it. And when they had the big raid the, of the riots that happened in the park in Tompkins Square Park in 1988, he's like, those are a lot of my customers. And then he always watched out for them. And he's an older gentleman now. He just had heart surgery pretty recently. And It's wonderful how the community gathered together to help support him and keep the place afloat while he was in the hospital in a way. And we just went there, you know, fairly recently to show him the book. And 
He was so happy. And while we were there, they were giving away like turkeys because it was around Thanksgiving time across the street. And people came in and they just would grab a cup of coffee. And he was just like, oh, don't worry about it. He knew who they were. And, and if they didn't have money to pay, he's like, oh, get me next time. You know, that kind of place that doesn't exist so much anymore in, in New York, that sense of community. So, yeah. And he makes egg creams in many different flavors, actually. Is that right? Mm-hmm. What's your favorite? Well, I'm, I guess I'm partial to the chocolate egg cream. Yeah. <laughs> Is there fear among these store owners about what happens after they're gone? Because as you say, many of these people have been in the business for a long, long time. And I would imagine even in family businesses, it's not always easy to get someone to take over your business, especially these days. It might have been earlier. Years ago, it was a natural thing where a family member would take over the business. Definitely. Many of the store owners told us that, and this is kind of the second reason why many of the stores close. First of all, the the rent is is probably the biggest obstacle that they face when they don't own the building. But sometimes it's because, especially in a family generational business, that they've worked very, very, very hard to make a better life for their children. And they actually don't want their children to take over the family business. They wanted them to get an education. And many of the owners have told us, my son or my daughter has become a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, and they have no interest, especially it's in the food business. We see that most of the time because especially like a bakery, it's very, very, very long hours. You have to get there at like three o'clock in the morning to start baking. And it's a big, big commitment. They told us, oh, we work like 80, 90, 100 hours a week. We hardly saw our family. I mean, some of the Owners would tell us they had mem- memories of like falling asleep on top of bags of flour, you know, as as a youngster because they would just try to hang out with their father and, and their mother at the store. And it's touching, but they really don't want their kids to take over the business. So that's definitely another reason why you see that. And the profit margins are very narrow. But on the other hand, the good side of the story is there's businesses in particular, I can think of a bakery, Caputo's Bake Shop in Brooklyn, in Carroll Gardens, where the fourth and fifth generation owners, the fourth generation owner was getting ready to retire. And he told his son, who had be, um, gotten an education and became very successful um, a broker on Wall Street, that he was uh, getting ready to, you know, just fold the business. And the son had gotten so upset that he actually quit Wall Street and ended up joining the business. And pretty much overhauled the business and computerized it and made it streamlined and work much more efficiently. So that's one of the success stories. So it's nice to hear. It's not to us. It's not a like a project where it's a lamentation of the things that we have lost. It's more of a celebration of the stores that are still in existence. And sometimes the old becomes new again, like records, actual vinyl records have made a comeback in recent years. And you feature one place in your book that still sells vinyl in Greenwich Village, House of Oldies. I would imagine that they are profiting from this newfound interest in vinyl records. Yes. And the the owner, Bob Abramson, I'm pretty sure that he started the store in 1969. And what he did cleverly is... When he started the business, he started buying up inventory of record stores that were going out of business. So everything that he sells there, which is only vinyl, is brand new pretty much because he would buy up the inventory. Like they'll still have the plastic wrap on on them. Even the 45s, when you go in there, you take it out of the sleeve, you could see it's never been played. He 
put it in storage. So he has like tens of thousands of records. It's a really small store. When you go inside, you know, don't be surprised. He's got a whole basement full of things. You can ask him where something is and I mean, there's records everywhere, and he knows exactly where to look. But the thing that he told us, which has been saving his business, is teenagers. We thought that it was people like, you know, where I'm in my mid-40s and uh, James is, is 50. We thought it was people like our age that were keeping the business afloat because we grew up with vinyl. But he said, oh, no, 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 no. What's keeping me in business is the teenagers, that they've realized the quality of vinyl, and vinyl is back, baby. So that's what's keeping him afloat and, you know, the high quality of the records he sells. It's nothing new. It's all from 1950 to 1990. But he's never handled a cassette, never an 8-track. In fact, in the window is a sign that he put up there when he first opened, um, just records, like no tapes, no CDs, you know, um, no 8-tracks. So it's kind of funny. He said, oh, people still come in and they're like, oh, do you have this CD? And he's like... No. (laughs) (laughs) What's the oldest establishment that you feature in your book? I mean, definitely we have a a bunch of businesses from the late 1800s. I can remember one in particular. Keels is one of them, right? Keels is is very old, but I... um, um, I can't remember the exact date that that opened, but they've changed ownership. So I think the better one to highlight would that off the top of my head would be Katz's Drugs in Williamsburg. That's been in business since 1895. And even though it's not owned by the Katz's um, family, the business anymore, it's it's been sold to a different pharmacist. The family still owns the building. And I was able to track down the third generation over Michael Katz, who retired. He moved down to Florida, was able to track him down. And he told us such an interesting history that the business still survived to this day because of like a lot of key things that happened. Like there was a Spanish influenza outbreak in 1918, which... Um, his uh, grandfather smartly kept the store like open 24 hours a day to meet the growing demand of people coming down with that, you know, flu. There was really no cure for it, but they were desperate and they would come in and they would get mustard rubs and alcohol rubs. And then he told us, oh, his father made another smart business decision during Prohibition. He sold tonics hmm. that you couldn't buy alcohol. But because they had access to medical grade alcohol, being a pharmacy, his father like cooked stuff up, like, you know, had a little recipe book and flavored the alcohol, the medical grade alcohol into whiskey, gin, rye and scotch and sold that. So that's what kept their business afloat for that. So it was like a bunch of these key decisions. And also that we love the signage. It has a gorgeous, gorgeous, huge. I mean, I don't even know, must be 100 feet tall neon sign catch drugs and underneath it it says pharmacia so it's pharmacy in in spanish and he said his father made another clever decision to put that words pharmacia in there because at the time in williamsburg in the 1950s a lot of hispanic people started moving into the area and his father said oh you know what I need to hire Spanish-speaking help here, and I need to get with the program and change with the times. And he put that word pharmacia so people could know that come in, that we, we speak Spanish here too. And he also said cleverly he added a huge makeup section to the store that he found out from hiring um, local women that they wore a lot of makeup, and they expanded the makeup section of the store. So it was like all these little decisions kept the business going. And also, they find he finally bought the bought the store. He said, 
all that time they were renting, like his grandfather, his father, and what prompted Michael, who was the third generation owner, to finally buy the entire um, building was a friend of his. A friend of his was like, oh, you don't own the building? You're crazy. They're going to just take away your store one day, you know, with high rents. Buy the building. And he didn't want to. But his friend pressured him and he said, oh, that's what saved the business. If he hadn't bought the building, you know, I mean, and that gave him his retirement because he sold it to a pharmacist that was working for him at the time. And now he still gets a check every month from, you know, the rent of the building. So what's next for you two? What are you working on now? Well, I mean, we've never stopped documenting these uh, wonderful mom and pop stores. People say to us, oh, my goodness, you guys must have been, you know, photographed everything by now. And we would love to say that, but we'll never say that's true because there'll always be that little side street, especially, you know, one perhaps in the outer boroughs that really doesn't go very far. It might be a little dead end when there might be a little corner store or something just stuck in, like, say, the bottom of somebody's brownstone that we haven't captured. So we're always looking. So the work continues. Carla Murray, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having us and me in this case. I really appreciate the support. That was Carla Murray. Carla and her husband, James Murray, have been documenting New York City's neighborhood shops since the 1990s. Their latest book, Storefront 2, A History Preserved, The Disappearing Face of New York, is out now from Ginkgo Press. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Past episodes of the show are available in our archives at wfuv.org slash cityscape. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter for show updates since New York City tidbits. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producers Taylor Nolk and Claire Drake. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.